Romans chapter 1. We've been looking at the question, gay and Christian, is that possible? And balancing grace and truth. And this is, this is part two of that particular focus in this series. Part two of balancing grace and truth and considering this morning that these involve a call to love and that in dealing with this subject matter that we've been dealing with in this series, very contentious, very controversial subject matter, in dealing with it, we, we, we realize that this is more than an issue to debate and argue about and share controversy around. This is about more than that. It's about people to be loved. People to be loved. Romans chapter 1. Keep it open in front of you, but I also have provided this passage for us on the screen uh, for us to read together. And if you will lift your voices and fill this room through your mask, through your veiled faces. Let's read the Word of God together. Will you do that with me? Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 18 to 32. We have looked at this passage already in this series, and we're going to, uh, to dig a little further this morning with it. Read together with me. For the anger of God is unveiled from heaven against all the ungodliness and injustice performed by people who use injustice to suppress the truth. What can be known of God, you see, is plain to them since God revealed it to them. Ever since the world was made, His invisible power and deity have been seen and known in the things He made. As a result, they have no excuse. They knew God, but didn't honor Him as God or thank Him. Instead, they learned to think in useless ways, and their unwise heart grew dark. They declared themselves to be wise, but in fact, they became foolish. They swapped the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of the image of mortal humans and of birds and animals and reptiles. So God gave them, that should say gave them, sorry, gave them up to uncleanness in their desires of their hearts with the result that they dishonored their bodies among themselves. They swapped God's truth for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God gave them up to shameful desires. Even the women, you see, swapped natural sexual practice for unnatural. And the men, too, abandoned natural sexual relations with women and were inflamed with their lust for one another. Men performed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the appropriate repayment for their mistaken ways. 
Moreover, just as they did not see fit to hold on to knowledge of God, God gave them up to an unfit mind so that they would behave inappropriately. They were filled with all kinds of injustice, wickedness, greed, and evil. They were full of envy, murder, enmity, deceit, and cunning. They became gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, self-important, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, unwise, unfaithful, unfeeling, uncaring. They know that God has rightly decreed that people who do things like that deserve death. But not only do they do them, they give their approval to people who practice them. What are we to make of this very expression that we have even titled this particular segment of this series, Gay Christian? Question mark. Our modern world has put various names on the phenomena of same-sex relations. Most recently, this one. Gay. <laughs> I was reading a storybook to my granddaughter on um, Friday. I was together with her, and um, she's three now. For those of you who, who know that, that uh, I'm actually a papa now, um, she's three. Nevea is her name, and uh, she is the daughter of our oldest daughter, Cassidy. And uh, I was together with her. My wife, Lori, cares for her as a part of... Lori runs a daycare out of our home. And she just has a couple of clients, and our granddaughter is one of them. And um, so I was reading a storybook to her. Uh, one of those old... I don't know if you would be familiar with these, but the old Golden Books. Do you remember the, the Golden Books series? It was, uh, it, <laughs> Faye knows who, what I'm talking about. And the, in this, 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 this shows how dated the book was because it used the word gay, but it meant happy. Remember the days when gay meant happy? Well, that has changed. We don't use the word that way. If you say gay today, it means something completely different. And uh, so it, I was just struck with that again as I, was, as I was reading this story to her. And, and this is one of the names in our modern world that we use in this way. Or its female counterpart, uh, lesbian. Gay, lesbian, homosexual. And, and these, I don't like these labels really because I find them to be imprecise imprecise labels. They refer to a wide range of emotions and actions that it would be foolish to think only came to light in recent generations. This is, this is not a matter that is, that is just characteristic of our modern world. This is, this is a matter that has, has, is, is generations in its, in its occurrence and activity and evidence in our world. 
generations in human history. And as I shared last week, it bears repeating again. It's a good idea for us to take care always to make the terms gay or homosexual the adjective and never the noun in respect to gay-oriented people or gay-oriented Christians or homosexual-oriented people. That is, those Christian and not who experience homosexual desires and inclinations. But we're also thinking now in terms of the question, can someone be both? Both gay and Christian. Some think this to be a contradiction, and this, of course, is part of the controversial mix of this whole subject. Some feel it's a contradiction. If a person is gay, they can't be Christian. And if they're truly Christian, they should not call themselves gay Christian. And if they're truly following Christ, they... This is not how they should refer to themselves, even if they experience same-sex attraction. So this is part of the, the incredible controversy around this whole matter. And let's explore this a little further, because it's important that we understand this in order to then effectively love the way we are called to. I think it's important that we distinguish the usage of this term gay. Some strongly use this term to describe their core identity, central to who they are, a primary aspect of their existence as a human. The trouble is, is that it's difficult to reconcile this with the gospel. The gospel, which shatters and shackles all other identities and submits them to Christ. We are sons, daughters, and servants of King Jesus. And as such, we find our ultimate identity in Him. His life. His death. His resurrection. Lay hold of your identity, beloved, as just that. That you are the beloved of God. And that is the core identity that you possess. Every other aspect of your identity, whether in this case it be gay or lesbian, or whatever it may be, every other aspect of, of this is submitted to that, that you are first, as a child of God, His beloved. And we began looking at this matter last week. And of course, we settled last week that someone who has given themselves to truly follow Christ, even though they may have these inclinations and desires towards same-sex relations, they suppress those 
they submit those to Christ because they know they are not in keeping with His Word and alignment with His intended way of life and living. And so they give themselves to live before Christ just as you and I would take whatever temptations, allures, whatever would try to to mess with our lives in our own weaknesses and struggles and so on, and we submit those to Christ that we might follow Him accordingly. And so if that is the case, yes, of course, someone can be a Christian and gay, if you will, at the same time. But there is also a stream, as many of us know, that affirm. They they affirm and believe that God affirms their gay attractions and gay inclinations and gay desires. God affirms that. And so they give themselves to live in those kind of relations and consider themselves Christian as well. But there, of course, is the contradiction. And that's not something that biblically is possible. Some people use the term gay to simply describe how they experience the world. For instance, I'll use myself as an example. I am a straight, heterosexual man. And both my straightness and maleness affect the way I see the world. In the same way, some of my friends who are also men, but attracted to the same sex, which adds a very different lens through which they experience the world. Nonetheless, for some, the question of whether or not such people should call themselves gay Christians is very contentious. And I see both perspectives, personally. On the one hand, I don't call myself a straight Christian. Why then should the same-sex attracted Christians call themselves gay Christians? In Christ, we are all simply Christian. All other identities have their potential, or rather have the potential, of suppressing our primary identity, which again is in Christ before all else. On the other hand, God values diversity, and we see all sorts of identities that are good and true and reflect God's beautiful, glorious image. Yes, my ultimate and deepest identity is in Christ. And as a Christ follower, for you, that is the, the same is true. Your identity, your core identity is in Christ. My identity is in Christ, but I'm also a man, a Canadian. I enjoy jazz. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a pastor. I like to hike, so sometimes I might call myself a hiker. But are these things the core of my identity? No. 
There are aspects of it. So when I use these other references, I always intend them to be secondary, not primary. They are all part of who I am, but they're not the central core of my existence. Are you following? These things simply describe how I experience and enjoy the world, even though they are all subordinate under my primary identity, I am in Christ. I am His Son. I am the Beloved, just as are you, His Son, His Daughter, His Beloved. So let me just stress to us, define yourself radically as one Beloved by God. Define yourself that way. This is the true self. This is the primary identity. Every other identity is an aspect of that, but it's secondary. So all that said... I also believe that it's important for us to define our terms to avoid misleading those who would not know what we mean by the term gay and end up reading into it a connotation that we don't understand that we don't intend rather words how many know this words are important words are important and it's important that we, we understand words and the words we use. Words have a life of their own, a life which seems to be independent of us, even. When people hear them, words can change the way they think and live. Think of, for instance, the words... I love you, or I'm sorry, or I forgive you, or it's time to go, or you're fired. All of those words have different effects on us when we hear them. These words create new situations. They affect circumstances. And people respond or act accordingly. The words remain in their memory and they go on affecting them. So when we use language, we need to consider not just what we mean by our words, but how those words will be understood in the ears of others. That's just good communication. For instance, you might refer to yourself as a warrior Christian. I'm a warrior Christian. And this could mean different things to all kinds of different people. Are you violent? Warrior Christian. Are you violent? Are you aggressive? Are you going to punch someone in the face in the name of Christ? 
Are you a weird, wild, and wacky charismatic? I'm a warrior Christian. No, 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 no. You say, I only mean that I served in Afghanistan with the armed forces. Okay, so you're not violent or aggressive, just sacrificial in patriotic service to your country. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. I'm a warrior Christian. In any case, the phrase warrior Christian will quite likely miscommunicate what you are trying to say about yourself. Do you you get this? So we have to consider our words. Or more relevant to the matter at hand, when I tell people that I am affirming in this subject that we're dealing with, this could also be, be misunderstood and misleading unless I explain exactly what I mean when I say I am affirming. It doesn't mean that I affirm the sanctity of same-sex sexual relations. That's not what I mean when I say I am affirming. It does mean that I do affirm people. All people. I do affirm same-sex attracted people. I don't affirm the pursuit of those attractions or those inclinations or that disposition, but I do affirm the people. But left unexplained, in the least, it would lead to confusion, and at worst, it would come off as dehumanizing. But explained, the word means that I love and value all people the same while maintaining a traditional biblical Christian sexual ethic. Now, I have not yet had this privilege. I've not yet had the privilege of visiting Israel. It's on my bucket list. Perhaps some of you have been there. But I have learned, and let me just share this as an example to help us understand. I have learned that it is common in Israel for Messianic Jewish believers not to refer themselves as Christian, but rather to use the term believer. Now, on the surface, this may seem hypocritical to us. What's wrong with them? Are they ashamed? Are they embarrassed? No, no, it has nothing to do with that at all. When when it is explained why they don't use the term Christian, there comes a very valid understanding. You see, when local Jews hear the term Christian, they associate it to many years of history when so-called Christians killed Jews who didn't convert to Christianity. And that is why they use the term believer instead of Christian. It conveys the same thing, only without all the baggage. Likewise, the term gay may simply mean that a person experiences same-sex attractions. And therefore, the label 
is not inherently wrong. However, it also carries the potential of communicating something that the person doesn't intend. The point is, we need to be careful and considerate with our words and about using the labels that we use that could be misleading given their broader cultural meaning. The most important thing for us to remember is that we are dealing with a matter here that is much more than just an issue, as I said a few moments ago. These are people to be loved. So we must look past our labels. Yeah? Now, an essential question that we must face off with is, is same-sex orientation, disposition, and inclination itself? Is the orientation, disposition, and inclination itself sinful? Or just same sexual behavior, action, and activity? Is the desire, the attraction, the inclination itself sinful? Or is it the behavior, the action, and the activity? And by sinful, I mean a morally culpable sin. That is, meriting condemnation or blame. Because it's harmful. And wrong. A culpable sin, not just a product of the fall of humankind. Like, for example, being born blind. Remember that question that they brought to Jesus? This man was born blind. Who sinned? Him or his parents? And, and, and Jesus said that, guys, you're totally missing it. In this case, is the inclination itself, the attraction, the desire, is that sinful? Or is it just the behavior, the action, the activity? A morally culpable sin is a concrete act of disobedience that people need to repent from. Well, Let's find some clearer understanding on this. Let's look to properly understand this by looking at this passage that we have read together. Romans chapter 1. Let's unpack this passage a little more than we already have in weeks past. Paul here addresses humankind's unrighteousness, which consists essentially of the following components. A refusal to honor God and give Him thanks. Thereby rejecting Him and so em embracing distorted thinking which leads to darkened hearts and corrupt living. Verse 21 of this passage. Paul says, God has clearly shown forth His eternal, invisible power and divine nature. God has clearly shown His deity 
in and through the created world, verses 19 and 20. But the human race, in general, has disregarded this evidence and turned on a massive scale to idolatry. Verse 23. Now please notice that Paul refuses to put forward a catalog of sins as the cause of human alienation from God. He doesn't do that. Instead, he delves right to the root of the problem. All the other depravities follow, and they're all symptoms. They're all the fruit of this, but he gets right to the root This radical rebellion of the creature against the Creator. Verses 24 to 31. Paul says the root of what was going on here was humankind's rebellion and refusal to see God as He demonstrated and displayed Himself in the world. A refusal to see Him and instead turning from that to their own ways and to create their own image of God and thereby commit adultery or idolatry, which was adultery spiritually too. And Paul says this is the root issue and from this sprang everything else. And he lists all of the different things. The relations of male with male and female with female, gossips, slanderers, disobeying parents, all of these other things. But he says that, that's fruit. That's not the root issue here. He dives right to the root of it. And he deals with this radical rebellion of the creature against the Creator. There's language of exchange that's going on in this passage. The exchange, and it plays a central role in this passage, emphasizing the direct parallelism between the rejection of God and the rejected, created, intended sexual roles. Paul charges that humankind in their rebellion exchanged. Say that with me, will you? Exchanged. They exchanged. They swapped. They swapped the glory of the immortal God in their rebellion for images instead resembling mortal human beings, birds, four-footed animals, reptiles. Instead of worshiping God for who He is, as He lovingly presented Himself through His creation, instead, they exchanged that for their own ideas. Then He directly connects it to sexual impurity. Heterosexual as well as homosexual. Both. Because they exchanged, there it is again, the truth about God 
for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And so God handed them over to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verses 24 to 27. So it's important that we understand that the aim of Romans 1, this passage we have open in front of us, is not to teach us a code of sexual ethics. Nor is this passage a warning of God's judgment against those individuals who are guilty of particular sins. Rather, what Paul is doing is he's offering a diagnosis of the disordered human condition as a whole. He adduces the fact of widespread homosexual behavior as evidence that human beings are indeed in rebellion against their Creator, which again stems from the foundational sin of refusing to honor God and to give God thanks. Verse 21. That's the root issue right there. Refusing to honor God and give God thanks. Glory to God and gratitude to God. Paul's point is not There are some exceptionally wicked people out there who do these revolting things. That's not Paul's point. Rather, his point is the fact that such clear distortions of the Creator's male plus female intention occur in this world indicates to us that the human race as a whole is guilty of a character-twisting idolatry. He sees the practice of same-sex relations as a sign that the world in general is out of joint. Given over to follow their own futile thinking and desires. And then in verses 26 to 31, we have a catalog of the precipitating unrighteous behavior that happens. All that precipitates from this. Which is a list of symptoms of the sickness of humanity in rebellion against God and fallen under the power of sin. For all have sinned, Romans 3 says. For all have sinned. And fallen short of God's intended glory. So, this is the context of Romans 1. And when we keep this context clearly in view, several important observations can be drawn from what Paul is saying here. Let me me just quickly touch on some of those together with you. Observations from what Paul is saying here. First, Paul is not describing the individual life histories of individual pagan sinners here. That's not what this is. Rather, when he writes 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What Paul is doing is he's giving us a global account of the universal fall of humanity. Paul has Genesis 3 in mind here. The universal fall of humankind. They exchanged the glory. The glory that they knew in Genesis 1 and 2. They exchanged all of that. God's God's display and demonstration of Himself through all that had been created. The ultimate expression of His image in humankind, male and female themselves. They exchanged all of that. He's describing the universal fall of humanity. He's describing the fallen condition of the pagan world. And the fruit of this fall is manifested continually in the various ungodly behaviors and activity that he lists in verses 24 to 31. So this isn't individual uh, people that he's talking about. He's talking about the global fall of humankind in these words. Here's a second observation. Paul is not talking about sexual orientation here of any kind. He uses a unique phrase in verse 27, if you look at it. He uses this phrase, they were inflamed with lust, or they burned with passion. And that refers to passions that accompany and drive sexual arousal. But this phrase is not at all what is meant by same-sex orientation today, as we understand it. In fact, Paul, and this is important that we, that we see this, Paul, nor anyone else in the ancient world, had a concept of sexual orientation the way we do today when we use that expression. There was no concept of this. To introduce this modern concept of ours into this passage, to suggest that Paul disapproves of those who act contrary to their individual sexual orientations is to lapse into anachronism. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't compute. There, there was no concept of sexual orientation. The point is, is that Paul deals here with activity. He deals here with behavior that is born of sexual lust inflamed, burning passion inflamed in the mind and the heart. He's not dealing with the matter of sexual orientation the way we understand and use that expression today. Are you tracking with me? Here's a third observation. Paul singles out homosexual intercourse for special attention because he regards it as providing for us 
a particularly vivid image of the way in which the fallenness and brokenness of humankind distorts God's created order and intention for human sexuality. God the Creator made man and woman for each other. To cleave together. To be fruitful together. To multiply. Our God-given sexual desires rightly find their intended fulfillment within heterosexual marriage. That was God's design. That is God's design. And when these created roles are exchanged, to use Paul's words, for homosexual intercourse, they embody the spiritual condition of those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They embody the spiritual condition of a broken world. Again, Paul sees the practice of same-sex relations as a sign that the human world is in general out of joint. Not the only sign, but a very vivid one. Here's a fourth observation from our passage. While the Bible does express un qualified disapproval, homosexual acts are not, however, considered specially reprehensible sins. That is, they are no worse than any other manifestations of human sin and unrighteousness that is listed in this passage. No worse in principle than covetousness or gossip or disrespect for parents, or any of the others that are listed there. Interesting. Here's a fifth and final observation. Homosexual activity and all unrighteousness will not incur God's punishment. It is its own punishment. Paul goes on to say later on in Romans, sin of every sort, of every stripe, has wages. Hello? Sin has wages. And we earn those wages according to the sin that we are given to. Paul here is simply echoing a traditional Jewish idea that was commonly understood in the ancient world. He's no doubt thinking of such writing as the wisdom of Solomon. The wisdom of Solomon is an apocryphal intertestamental writing is not canonized in the Scripture. In other words, it's not part of our Scripture and considered part of our biblical canon. But it is wisdom literature that exists and existed during Paul's day and no doubt he was very familiar with. 
and it has informed his thinking here. And the wisdom of Solomon puts it like this, Therefore, those who lived unrighteously in a life of folly, God tormented through their own abominations. The sin brought its own torment. And God did not stand in the way of that torment from happening. He gave them over, Paul says, to their own ways and their own way of thinking. It's like C.S. Lewis has put it, as I've shared with you before. God says, please live your lives according to my will, and we pray, thy will be done in the Lord's Prayer. But there does come a time for those who are resistant and rebellious and consistently pushing back against the desire in the heart of God for us to where God finally does say to us, okay, your will be done. You don't want to submit to my will and surrender to my way and my intention, so your will. And that's what Paul says in this passage. He gave them over. He gave them up to their own way of thinking. He wasn't going to fight with them. Any of us who are parents understand this truth to some degree, don't we? How many know that there are times in our parenting where we sometimes just have to let our children do what they're insisting on doing because it's the only way they're going to learn? Hello? You know, it's simple, simple juvenile example, and in no way am I suggesting you try this at home. But we say to our children, don't touch the stove. It's hot. Don't touch the stove. But curiosity gets the better of them. And you can keep telling them, don't touch the stove, don't touch the stove. You can exercise whatever measure of discipline you want to do to try to keep them from touching the stove. But how many know there finally gets to a, you get to a place with them to where they're so desirous to touch the stove, just let them touch it just once. When I was a boy, I was fascinated with, with the flame of a candle. I think I was probably about five years old at this time. And at Christmas time, my mother would always have candles throughout our house, and it was a beautiful thing. But she would always say to me, now don't play with the candles. Don't play with the candles. But finally, one evening, curiosity got the better of me. And I had torn up little strips of paper, and I was sticking them in the candle flame. And I burned my thumb badly. It was terrible. I still can feel the pain of it to this day. How many know I never played with the candles again? Sometimes, and, and, and see, God, that's what God's demonstrating here. He finally just gave them over because they were so insistent. He wasn't going to fight with them. He wasn't going to argue with them. He had clearly demonstrated His love for them. He had clearly shown His will and intention for them. He'd made that clear to them in all of creation. But they still insisted. 
So same-sex activity, then, is not a provocation of the anger of God. Rather, it is a consequence of God's heartbroken decision to give up rebellious creatures, to give them over to their own ways, having themselves chosen to turn away from God, to follow the futility of their own dizzy thinking and dehumanizing desires and darkened hearts. So let me remind us again, even as Paul speaks of God's final judgment, at the heart of Paul's view of God lies a picture of God that is kind and good. Even as Paul speaks of God's final judgment, there is a picture that lies in the heart of Paul's thinking of God that is kind and good. Not in the sense of an indulgent, sleepy old uncle who doesn't care too much about what people do. Not kind and good in that sense, but kind in the sense of genuinely caring, merciful, understanding, compassionate, slow to anger, and trying to find the best way forward for humankind. And if this were not the case... If this were not true about God, for instance, if if God was essentially mean and angry and arbitrary and random and ready to pounce on any and every wrongdoing, how many know we would have all been blown off the planet long ago? Hello? I certainly would have been. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, oh, not me, Pastor. We all would have been. All have fallen short. But God isn't like that. That's not how God is. God is patient with us. He is long-suffering again and again. He gives people the opportunity to get it together, to turn to Him in repentance and trust and to find their lives coming back into shape and abundant living in Him as He intended. But what if it doesn't have that effect? Well then, as we see in our passage at hand today, humankind faces the consequences of God's heavy-hearted decision to give them up. To give them over to themselves, to their own will being done. To follow the futility of their own devices and dizzy thinking and dehumanizing desires and darkened hearts. And to reap the fruit that this brings. Which is a harvest of God's anger. As Paul said, is revealed. For the anger of God is revealed from heaven. But that's not the first thing that happens here. This is a culmination of everything we've talked about to this point. And finally, God gives them over. Finally, one more thing must be said here. And then I'm out of your way and we can get 
on with our day. Romans 1, 18 to 32. Paul sets up here a spiritual sting expose operation. The passage builds as we read it. And as we've read it together, the passage builds a crescendo of God's heartbreak, of God's appealing to humankind, of God's demonstration of his heart and his love for, through all creation. And it builds, and then his heartbreak, and then condemnation and anger upon human unrighteousness. It whips us, the readers, into a frenzy of indignation against others, those unbelievers, those idol worshipers, those immoral enemies of God. But then, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, the sting strikes. Look what it says. So you, Paul says. Everybody say you. Everybody say that's me. So you, Paul says, have no excuse. Anyone, whoever you are, who sits in judgment, when you judge someone else, you condemn yourself. Because you, who are behaving as judge, are doing the same things. The reader who gleefully joins in the condemnation of the unrighteous is without excuse, without a defense before God, Paul says. Oh, those filthy homosexuals, those immoral pagans, those idolaters, those, those, those idol worshipers. And Paul says, hold on, guys. If you're putting yourself in the place as judge like that, you're no better than they are. We're without excuse, Paul says. We're without a case. We're, without, we're indefensible, just as those who refuse to acknowledge God are inexcusable. The radical move that Paul makes is to proclaim that all people, all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, stand equally condemned under the just judgment of a righteous God. And consequently, for Paul, self-righteous judgment of homosexuality is just as sinful as the same sexual behavior itself. That does not mean that Paul is disingenuous in his rejection of same-sex acts and all other sinful activity mentioned in Romans 1, 24-32. All evils listed there remain evils in our passage today. Even so, no one should presume to be above God's judgment, Paul is saying. All of us stand in radical need of God's mercy. Yes? So then Paul's warning here should transform the terms of our contemporary debate about homosexuality. It should awaken us to love as God loves. It should quicken our hearts 
to what the life and look of love is to be in our lives and through our lives today as His people when it comes to this matter and these people. These are people to be loved. No one of us has a secure platform to stand upon and self-righteously thump in order to pronounce blame or condemnation and judgment on others. No one of us. Anyone who in self-righteousness presumes to have such a vantage point is living in a dangerous fantasy, oblivious to the Gospel that levels all of us before a holy God. Instead, being recipients ourselves of God's long-suffering patience, caring kindness, compassion, slow to become angry heart of mercy, and nature of love, we too are called to be humble, serving, life-giving channels of the same life-giving life and look of love in this broken world. Beloved, this is so much more than a contentious, controversial issue to be debated and argued about. These are people to be loved. So what is that love to look like? What is this life and love to look like? This is what we're seeking to get a hold of as we study together in this series. Agape.